As you are being seated, if you would please take out your copies of God's Word as we look at Luke chapter 20 today. Luke chapter 20. We'll be reading in verses 27 through 40 today. As we have a very exciting passage for us. I've been very much looking forward to bringing this one to you today. Luke chapter 20, starting in verse 27. There came to him, that is Jesus, some Sadducees, those who deny that there is a resurrection. And they asked him a question, saying, Teacher, Moses wrote for us that if a man's brother dies, having a wife but no children, the man must take up the widow and raise up offspring for his brother. Now there were seven brothers. The first took a wife and died without children, and the second and third took her, and likewise all seven left no children and died. Afterward, the woman also died. In the resurrection, therefore, whose wife will the woman be? For the seven had her as wife. And Jesus said to them, The sons of this age marry and are given in marriage, but those who are considered worthy to attain to that age and To the resurrection from the dead, neither marry nor are given in marriage, for they cannot die anymore, because they are equal to angels and are sons of God, being sons of the resurrection. But that the dead are raised, even Moses showed. In the passage about the bush, where he calls the Lord the God of Abraham and the God of Isaac and the God of Jacob. Now, he is not the God of the dead, but of the living. For all live to him. And then some of the scribes answered, Teacher, you have spoken well. For they no longer dare to ask him any question. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God for his word. Let's go to this God and ask blessing on our text this morning. Oh, Jesus, we thank you for this passage that you have given to us and the teaching that's therein. Pray that you would help us to comprehend it, and more importantly, help us to live it. We ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen. When you have had a hard day, what do you tell yourself to make yourself feel better? I want you to think about it for a minute. What do you do when life is hard, and you want to escape it for a moment? Or at least try to put it into perspective. There are, of course, sinful things that we do, that people do to distract themselves from life. But there can be good ways to handle our hard times, too. Maybe we have a stock phrase like, well, at least I have my, you can fill in the blank with whatever that is, health, family, friends, house, whatever that is. Or maybe it's a hobby that you have. Monday through Friday is hard, but at least there's golf on the weekends. Or at least there's fishing on the weekends or whatever it is that you have. It's good that we have hobbies. And it's good and we need rest and recharging. But if you've been around for any length of time, you know that those things are not ultimate. You know that all of those things have an expiration date. The vacations that we look forward to, we have to return home. Eventually, you hit the last tee on your golf course and that's, you have to go back. 
Monday will come around again. Or for those of us with more existential angst, we recognize that eventually we have an expiration date. And that even those things that last for a long time, those have an end too. And we can come to find ourselves that we will have those days where it doesn't seem like anything will cheer us up in the light of that. It's really odd that those of us who are Christians will feel this way. Because we have a teaching that's indeed right here in this text that should change our lives. But we don't talk about it very much. We don't name our churches after the concept of resurrection. We have a Redeemer prez, we have covenant prez, but we don't have resurrection prez, which is odd, because this is our hope. This is what makes our lives and our view of them different than anyone else's, is this concept right here. Resurrection is not, as some have described, pie in the sky when you die by and by. Resurrection and eternal life is not wishful thinking or optimism. This is the most sure reality in all of the world. But we don't think about it. Or at least we don't think about it to the point where the implications of that change us. So I'm hoping we can look at that today in our passage this morning. You'll see in your outline, I have two points for you. Uh, It says, Jesus knows and rules the way to resurrection. Jesus knows and rules the way to resurrection. And number two, you will be resurrected. And that's the point I want us to sit on as we go through here. But we're going to look at both. So we're going to begin, verse 27. Here we're continuing our theme as we have for the last few weeks of Jesus' authority. Here he has triumphantly ridden into Jerusalem. The people proclaim him as Messiah. Very excited about his rule, but there are, but not everyone is excited about it. And the chief priests and the scribes have been bringing challenge after challenge to him to try to trip Jesus up and to show that he is in fact not the Messiah. It's actually doing us rather quite a bit of a favor. They're taking him through quite a lot of testing and he is passing them all. They asked him if he had a right to reform worship, and indeed he did, because he was the heir to the temple, the son of God. And we saw previous week that he is not of that he cannot be bound by governments, that he is not ruled by those things, but indeed he is the governor of governments, and that he is the one who rules. And it's to the point now where our his Disciples and followers are so unthreatened by a government that they can render taxes to it. And they don't have to resist it, except, of course, when they uh, command something other than what Christ has called them to. So now we're going to look today. Here we have covered the rights of prophecy, the rights of government, and now we're going to enter into theology. Can Jesus survive a theology exam? That's what we're going to look at today. So here we meet some new challengers, and they are the Sadducees. First time they're showing up in Luke. There's lots of things that we we think about the Sadducees. We don't have a whole lot of ideas to exactly who they were. But Luke gives us what's important for us to know, that they deny that there is a resurrection, which is why they were sad, you see. 
It's obligation. I had to say that. So They wouldn't let me have my degree unless I promised to make that joke when I come across this passage. So they deny the resurrection. They don't think that there is life after death. They think that this is all that they have. So they're going to challenge Jesus on it. Now, they come up with a very academic question. These would fit right in with seminary. And they bring up this situation that's not likely to happen. But there is some sophistication to their argument. What they're, in essence, asking is saying, you have two commandments that we have to follow. The one is that if a man marries a wife, he doesn't have any children, his brother has been commanded, that's in Deuteronomy 25, his brother is supposed to marry this woman and produce children. The idea would be so that this family name wouldn't die out. God had made a promise to all of Israel that they would have a land, and he doesn't forget the little families. God isn't satisfied with just having generally a promise fulfilled. It's going to be specific as well. So he has this command for them. And they've come up with this really odd scenario of this really unlucky woman who has had all seven of her husbands die. She has been legally and theologically, legitimately married to each one. She, they don't have any children, so there's nothing to link one husband as being more the husband than any, any of the others. And now they die. And they're saying, okay, this is command number one. Command number two is that marriage is supposed to be between one man and one woman. That was the pattern that was set out in the Garden of Eden. So they're thinking, in resurrection, it's going to be just like it is here. And what are you going to do? Each one has been legitimately married, so everyone can, can, can claim to be husband. But all of them can't be married at the same time, right? So clearly resurrection can't be true. Because you have two commandments that would contradict each other. We know the Bible doesn't contradict. There's their argument. And they're sitting back in their robes thinking they finally managed to outwit Jesus with some theological fancy footwork. So now why does Jesus enter into this conversation? Surely this is something that even if this was a problem, how often is that going to come up? But as one commentator pointed out, resurrection is the essence of the gospel. It's the hope. And no matter how silly or academic a question is, Jesus is going to answer it and is going to show that this is our hope and is going to show that there is resurrection. Now he goes about this by showing them that they have fundamentally misunderstood what resurrection is. Resurrection is not a continuation of this current life. They were thinking of resurrection like reincarnation. Just come back as another person and live on life as it always has been. That's not the case. Jesus says resurrection is completely different life. And is not lived the same way that we do today. And he goes on, verse 34. He says, the sons of this age, the people that are alive today, they marry and are given in marriage. But those who are considered worthy to attain to that age and to the resurrection of the dead, neither marry nor are given in marriage. Why? Verse 36. For or because they cannot die anymore. One of the purposes of marriage, 
not all of the, this is not the only reason or even the main reason, but a big reason for marriage is we die. We have to replace ourselves. God has stamped his image upon humanity and humanity isn't, doesn't, is not going to, is, shouldn't die out. We're not going to carry the image of God with us to the grave, but it's going to continue. So we have children and replace ourselves when we die. But he says in resurrection, there's no death anymore. So there's no need for procreation anymore. The number, the population of humanity will stay the same constantly forever. So that won't be required. And again, he goes on and says that they are equal to angels in this respect. This isn't to say that we become angels or we have wings or anything, but we take on that characteristic of eternal life. No dying anymore with these angels. This is what he is saying here. And then he goes on and proves that the Sadducees should have known this, that they should have understood resurrection. Notice, who were they quoting back up here in verse 28? They're quoting Moses. They were saying, Moses has told us this, that, and the other thing, and they tried to use Moses as the crowbar to show that resurrection wasn't true. But here, Jesus, in verse 37 says, but even the dead that are raised, even Moses showed that. So trying to use the same tool that they were using to disprove resurrection, he is going to use to prove that resurrection exists. And he references the passage that we just read of the burning bush. And he says, notice what God is saying here. He says that I am the God of Abraham and of Isaac and of Jacob. Now, were these people alive when Moses was around? No, these folks had been dead for hundreds of years by this point. And it would kind of sound silly to say that I am the God of people that, according to the Sadducees, don't exist anymore. It'd be like trying to say that I would be the captain of a boat when the boat is at the bottom of the sea. It's like, well, I don't see your ship, captain. We could do the same thing here. Well, I don't see your people, God. But what God is saying here is that Abraham and Isaac and Jacob, they are alive to God. They have been resurrected, in some form at least. That he understands that there is life after death. That there is a resurrection. God is not the God of the dead. One commentator had pointed out that God had made a promise to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob that still needed to be fulfilled. That there was a land that would be given to them. And he was going to fulfill that. And even death was not going to stop the fulfillment of God's promises. There is a resurrection. Now, let's take a look at our second point. That you will be resurrected. How do you attain something like resurrection? If you search online, you will find lots of classes to get yourself into lots of different positions. Try to figure out what does it take to become the person that people look to to operate on you. How do you become a surgeon? That's not something you just walk into an OR one day and say, I think I'm going to give this a try. You don't do that. There are lots of school, lots of work, lots of residency to get to this point in order to be a surgeon. Or really any other thing that you could look at. How do you become the CEO of Fortune 500 company? There's a lot of work. But those things seem attainable. How do you attain the resurrection of the dead? 
What YouTube video do you get to watch to figure that out? And Jesus gives us a hint to it in verse 35. Those who are considered worthy to attain to the age and resurrection. How do you become worthy of that? Seems almost a silly question to ask. Every single one of us is going to die. Asking the question, how do you get past death, seems almost laughable in our experience. When we see an animal die or a plant die, we don't bring them back. Or if we're able to do something like this on the surgery table, we just simply say they hadn't died yet. How does one attain the point where you can be good enough to be raised from the dead? Remember, the reason why we die is because we sin. So you say, it's like, okay, well, if you want to be resurrected, then never sin. Well, too late for that. Had to be perfect our entire lives. How does one get into a house of resurrection? Well, there was one person that managed to do it. Of course, his name is Jesus, the one who's teaching us here. He did keep all the commandments perfectly. He did attain the resurrection of the dead. That's why it's so important that he was raised from the grave. It's not just Jesus dying on the cross. It's the fact that he rose from the dead, too. It did more than prove that he was God. It proved that he had power over death. That even death was subject to Jesus. And Jesus is willing to share membership. He's willing to bring you along. We don't become worthy because we can do something or know something. We attain worthiness to resurrection because Jesus has done it and offers us today eternal life. If we'll put our trust in him, repent of our sins and come to him. But how do you attain a relationship like that? How do you get to know Jesus? Well, it's not just you knowing Jesus. It's Jesus knowing you. I remember I was in college and we had a a space that was built on top of our library. It was meant to be used as a meeting space. It was very neat. It was arranged with lots of different furniture and the, the walls were decorated in such a way that it was a really creative place to be. And students were allowed to be up there and study, although very few of us knew about it. Um, But when they would have meetings and such, then they would tell students that they needed to leave so this way they could rent this out to a local company. Well, I had discovered this space shortly after it was constructed and studied up there frequently before companies had found out about it. And I got to know the director of the center whose office was up there. Uh, We'd spoken many times. Finally, it came to the point where I was studying and a company had come in. It was time for them to use the meeting space. And one of the reps was getting ready to chase me out of the building. And the director stepped out of his office and said, no, 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 no. He can stay. Is that because I was special? Is that because I knew the director? No, it's because the director knew me. It was his center. He could choose what to do with it. And it's the same thing with Christ. So how do we form this relationship? Well, fortunately, Jesus is a very, very merciful director. And he invites all who are weary and are heavy laden to come and rest their burdens with him. All those who have sinned can come to Jesus and have their sin taken care of so that they can attain resurrection. Not because of what they've done, not even the faith, 
Even that is a gift. It is coming to Christ is how we have this relationship with Jesus. This is the gift of resurrection that he gives to us. Eternal life forever. So what's our takeaway from this passage? What should we learn from this? If you have space left in your notes, I've come up with four implications. There's many, many more, I'm sure, but these are the ones that I've thought of. What difference does knowing everything I've just said make in your life? Because we could say, okay, resurrection from the dead. Marvelous. I don't get to use that until then. Is this just something that I, it's only useful to me, albeit very useful, but it's only useful to me after I die? No. Knowing that you are going to have resurrection should change how you live right now in these four ways. The first is it changes what we ultimately treasure. It changes what we ultimately treasure. There are a lot of good gifts in our lives that are from God and should be enjoyed. Our spouses, our children, our houses, our lands, our food. These are all good gifts, but these are not ultimate. One commentator had pointed out that if this is a wonderful passage for those who have been single for a long time. God has not denied you an ultimate gift by not getting married yet. Or if your spouse has passed away, this does not mean that the ultimate gift has been taken from you. It's a big gift. I don't want to minimize that. But God is still holding the best gift for you still as resurrection from the dead. Marriage is wonderful. We don't despise the gift, but we're not distracted by those gifts. Don't be distracted by the good things, but let them point you to the giver and to the best. Number two follows from what I've said earlier. It changes how we view suffering. Far too often in Christian circles, We look to people who are suffering and try to get them to feel better immediately. Well, if we just say this one sentence, that will change it. It's like, well, so-and-so has died. All they need is just this little reminder, and it will all be good again. We don't have to try to pretend that suffering isn't real. We can look at it quite definitively and say, this is not how it was supposed to be. The world was created with the intention that it would not die, yet it does. It wasn't supposed to be this way. We can look at life realistically. We don't have to whistle in the dark. We can say, it's dark. It's hard. Life here hurts. But then we can smile because we know it won't last forever. Yes, there is suffering, profound suffering. But it doesn't last forever. It's not ultimate. Resurrection is coming. 
Your suffering does not have to define you, even if you suffer with it your entire life. Because this is not the entirety of your life. This isn't even most of it. Most of your life is going to be lived in a time of resurrection where there is no death, where there is no suffering, where there is no pain, where there is no sin. So we can look at life honestly. You don't have to put on the masks. Pretend that life is being better than it is. But we don't have to wallow there either. We can confront it for what it really is and then smile in the face of it because we know it has an end. It changes how we view suffering. It's no longer looking at the glass as half full or half empty. God's going to refill the glass until it's overflowing. We don't have to try to be optimistic. And it's like, well, look at the silver lining. We don't have to. We can be realists because resurrection is real. It's a hope. It's true. It's fact. That should change how we live. This is also change as to how we view other people's suffering as well. Some have abused this doctrine of resurrection as an excuse to not help with problems that they see. It's like, well, they'll have a resurrection, so it'll all work out in the end. So I don't have to contribute anything to this. No, you're going to be resurrected too. You can give of yourself. It can be a little bit painful. God's going to compensate you. Eternal life is coming. We can sacrifice a little bit more of our time. We can give away a little bit more of our money. Because this isn't it. Houses and lands and boats and vacations. That's not ultimate. It's resurrection. It's eternal life. It's Jesus. That's ultimate. So resurrection should change how we view our own suffering and how we should view other people's suffering. Two more, and we'll go over these quickly. Another implication is this changes what we fear. It changes what we fear. You don't have to be afraid of anything in this life. Governments, loss, disease, death itself. None of that has to be feared anymore. It's like, well, what if the government takes over and kills us all for being Christians? It's like, okay. Eternal life gets started. Who cares what the government does? It's like, well, if I do this, then this might, I might be uncomfortable if I have to go out and tell people about the gospel. Who cares? You're going to be resurrected. In fact, there's only one fear that should be left over when we have resurrection. The one fear that should be left over is that there might be somebody that I know that doesn't know about Jesus yet. That's the only thing we should be afraid of. Everything else we get to have taken away. What can man do? They can take life, but they can't touch the soul. That's what God has here for us. And finally, it gives us joy while we wait. 
Knowing that we have resurrection and eternal life with Jesus Christ our Lord forever helps us wait in this life. Anticipating your wedding day is very different than anticipating your tax audit. When there's joy around the corner, you can endure the little inconveniences because you're on your way to this. The Friday workday before you're heading off for three weeks vacation, you sail through that day, don't you? The inbox is filling up. It's okay. We'll get through it. Long meetings. Ah, it'll be fine. The beach, I can hear it already. Those Fridays hit very differently. But when you're dreading something, and there's something around the corner, a diagnosis that you're waiting on. Even the things that make you happy under normal circumstances, you don't even want to see them. Having resurrection is putting this ultimate joy constantly in your face. No matter what is happening in your life right now, that doesn't change this. You are still heading for a wedding. You are still going to eternal life with Jesus, not based on anything that you've done, but based on him who has worked for you. That's resurrection hope. Even death will not stop. There's a song that I came across a few weeks ago. It's called This Too. It tells the story of a mighty king who had sent his servants to find a magic ring, the hope that would serve him in both his fear and his joy. The servants were on an impossible task. As the poem picks up and says, they sought solace in a wise man and they were delivered from their terrible task. How the servant's heart did swoon and sing as the wise man carved into a ring this too. This too shall pass. So the mighty king was quite satisfied with the wise man's ring, though his foolish pride wouldn't let the words sink into his mind just yet. And as his kingdom grew, so the people cheered, and the ring's whisper became hard to hear, while the wealth and health and fame kept fear at bay. Till one bright morning in the courtyard, the king was standing to address the mass when the light did fall upon his ring. And the king recalled the prophecy, this too, this too shall pass. For not a stone would be left standing, and every mountain be laid low at last. But the king would bow as he greeted death, and he'd sing aloud with his fleeting breath, this too, this too shall pass. Death itself will pass, people. We can hold on to that throughout our life. That is something to think about at the end of a hard day. Let's pray. Oh, Father, we do thank you for this great hope that we constantly have before us that our lives do not begin and end here, but that we are going towards an eternal beginning. 
Lord, let these words sink into our mind so that our greatest joys only point us to the greatest joy and our deepest sorrows point us to the greatest hope that we can be resurrected and live with you forever. We ask all these things in Jesus' name, amen.